Hello, this is Sarah's great aunt Nancy. This week on the show, NPR political reporter Danielle Kurtzleben and reporter for Marketplace from American Public Media, Kimberly Adams. All right, let's start the show. From NPR, I'm Sarah McCammon. It's been a minute. Sam Sanders is enjoying the week off, which means I got to pick this song. We'll talk about it in a second, but first I want to say hello to my guest, Danielle Kurtzleben from NPR's Washington Desk. We know each other well from our days together on the NPR Politics Podcast. We do. And joining us from American Public Media's Marketplace, Kimberly Adams. Good to see you. Likewise. So this song, this is I Like It by Cardi B. Been out for a few weeks, you've probably heard it. Um, but it hit number one this week. And if you recognize it from maybe a long time ago, it's because it's a remake of the 1967 hit, I Like It Like That. Oh, he's so handsome. What's his name? Uh, do you guys recognize this? Oh, yeah. The song? Oh, yeah. From my workout mix, absolutely. <laughs> well, and also don't forget Jock Jams in the 90s oh. yeah. remix this song as well. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I think that was in my, like, drive-to-work mix in the early 2000s, which makes me feel so old. But this song is significant for a couple of reasons. First, Cardi B is now the first woman, first female rapper, to have two number one hits. And as Layla Kobo wrote in Billboard this week, the bigger story is the fact that that second number one, I Like It, is a fully bilingual song, where Cardi B raps in English and her two fellow artists, Bad Bunny and J Balvin, rap in Spanish. And and she says, uh, out of a 13-track album featuring a bunch of options, uh, the only one that got to the top is the bilingual one. And this comes about a year after another bilingual hit that you might remember, Despacito, hit number one just about a year ago. Um, And she writes, quote, that this is happening precisely the week of 4th of July is extremely ironic considering the times we live in and absolutely appropriate considering the country we live in. So... I picked this song because it's fun and it ties in with what we're going to be talking about today. It's a good song. It is a good song. It's a very good song. Yeah, we started jamming in here as soon as it came on. Wait, but hold on. The first woman to have two number one rap, first woman rapper to have two number one hits. Right. Did Missy Elliott not have two number ones ever? You'd have to ask Billboard. I'm fair. Oh, man, mind blown. I have no idea. I said I like it like that. I said I like it like that. All right, let's get into it. Each week we describe how the news felt in three words. And today we're going to start with you, Kimberly. What are your three words? My three words are getting more expensive because with yet another round of tariffs being announced and counter tariffs and market reactions to it and business reactions to it, we're just going to be seeing a lot more products getting more expensive. So if you look back at the tariffs on solar panels and washing machines, those items are already more expensive in the United States. This latest round that kicked in on Friday, the $34 billion in tariffs by the Trump administration and then China's counter tariffs, we probably won't feel things getting more expensive right away with that because a lot of these tariffs target supply chain items, not necessarily consumer goods. So there's a lag. There's going to be a lag, but we're, we're going to feel it eventually. Same as with the steel and aluminum tariffs. So are these like the first shots in the trade war? I mean, are we there? I mean, I think there have already been multiple shots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if they, I mean, the way that I was talking to an economist about this a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about how up until now, we were it was like the cold trade war. 
and we just got to the hot part. You know, like the like for for a while there were these small tit for tat. You know, between us and China, us and the EU, Canada, Mexico. You know. And now we're at this point where it's like, all right, we've promised them. Here you go, boom. You yeah,、know? I mean, I think previously what we were seeing is the targeting of particular sectors, steel、right. and aluminum,、mm-hmm. and then the counter tariffs were targeted at different industries. You know, but you're talking about relatively small hits to the broader economy, and now we're talking about sweeping tariffs that hit a lot of industries: tech, manufacturing, the agriculture industry, the ag industry is getting it on both sides. We're、mm-hmm. all Midwesterners here,、right. so. You know, you, for example, if you're a soybean farmer, you're getting hit because the U.S. is going to increase taxes on incoming agricultural machinery, while at the same time the Chinese have retaliated with tariffs on your soybean products, which is like, what do they say? One in six rows of American soybeans are supposed to be going to China. Yeah, no, my dad is a soybean farmer, and sorry. And, <laughs> God, I know that's sad laughter you hear. No, because like. I called him up on Father's Day, and I don't want to. I know he probably wouldn't appreciate being quoted too much on a national program, but I said, "Happy Father's Day, Dad!" And his response was, "We got a trade war." Like, yeah, yay! I mean, it's it. This is not good for American farmers. My dad aside, I mean, like, the cost of soybeans when the price for soybeans drops by you know a dollar or mo- by a tenth, like that that can translate to thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. In lower revenues for any given farmer at any given point, and of course, most of us don't go and buy a whole ton of soybeans, but. They go、right. into feed. They go into so many products that we、yeah. use all the time. Now, I should give the counter that you know some industries are going to be helped by this as well. I mean, I spent some time right after the election in Granite City, Illinois, which is right across the river from St. Louis, where it's a big steel town, you know, and they are thrilled because they're lighting up blast furnaces they haven't been using in years, and people are getting more jobs. And there will be industries in the United States that benefit from this. And the Trump administration. Is arguing that we need to put these constraints on imports so that we can build up these local businesses. Now, you know, this will probably also erase any benefit from the tax cuts in terms of the larger economy.、Oh, but you know, yeah. Well, Danielle, I want to hear your three words. My three words are please fast forward. <laughs> in the sense of this sort of hinges off of trade, but a lot of other things for the young millennials. That's what they used to do on VHS tapes. <laughs> And cassette tape. And cassette tape. <laughs> What do you call it on a DVD or a skip forward? Skip. Yeah, you're right. All right. Or、I'm, scrub forward. I guess. I'm, sh- I'm showing my age.、Um, but SCOTUS. Okay, so the president. Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The, so the president is going to announce his pick to、uh, replace Anthony Kennedy on Monday. But even then, of course, that's not the end of the line. Then there are confirmation hearings. But even then. What we're really going to be waiting on is all right, but seriously, what does this judge, whoever it is, Barrett, Kavanaugh, Kethledge, whichever one he picks, what are they actually going to rule on things like abortion on any given thing that pops up in front of them? Abortion being and that'll being take a while, right? Because、yes. of course these cases have to work their way through the system. The, the court has to take them, then they have to consider them. So it'll be a while. Till we know, unless we, since we can't fast forward. Yes, exactly. And then there's family reunification. Friday was the first big deadline that has been imposed on the government to say, all right, you need to have these kids with these parents back together by this date, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a few of those deadlines. Okay, but how, is the government going to be able to do that, and how will they be able to do that? And the story that really got me this week: those kids that were are trapped in the cave in Thailand. With this story. Same here, I because know, it's because so upsetting, really. Right, because but the thing is, it was such great news at first that 
they found these kids. They're that's lovely. And then the fact that it's going, it is so touchy to try to get them out. One person has died trying to get them out. Like, but can we just take a moment and talk about that coach? Can you imagine? I know being in there with those kids, and that coach somehow kept all of them together and all of them safe, physically and together, true. and keeping it together. Yeah, I, mean, I was reading he psychologically yeah. together for nine days in the dark. It's you know. incredible. Yeah. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, while the future is uncertain that whole time and you have no idea what's going to happen. That's a very good point. And the, the final thing I'll add on top of this is Scott Pruitt, who there we did get an ending on this this week after months and months of it seemed like scandals large and small piling up on this guy. He did resign, but I mean that that, that was a there the EP, was a EPA director. Uh, lots of headlines about him. Uh, I guess allegedly using his time and resources for personal matters. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the the story that sticks with me is the thing about using the lights and flashers and sirens and stuff on the motorcade to get to go to a meal at Le Diplomat, which is a famous French, uh, relatively famous, well known French restaurant here in DC. Right. Um, but that, you know, there was a long ramp up for this happening and people wondering, you know, like, what what is going to happen with this guy? Well, we did find out this week he did resign. But it seems like no matter how heavy the news cycle is, it's always in service of, all right, but seriously, how is this going to end? And we so rarely get endings. Right. And now I'm going to do my three words. Mine are in the balance, because once again, kind of like you said, Danielle, we find ourselves on the edge of our seats just waiting for a lot of big things to take place. I do think about trade. Uh, You hear about trade imbalances between the U.S. and China. Now it's looking like we're in the midst of a trade war. The president has some really pivotal meetings in the coming days with a lot of things sort of, you know, in play. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin in the next couple of weeks, this upcoming NATO summit in Brussels in the next several days. And then, of course, in the balance, I think of the courts. I think of the scales of justice, right, balancing uh, the the issues and the balance of the court. I mean, you touched on this, Danielle, but, um, you know, Kennedy was the swing vote for a long time on a lot of these major issues. And whoever Trump nominates most likely if confirmed, would tip the balance of the court to the right. I've been very fascinated throughout the week um, listening to the narrative around this, especially coming from liberals where they're just like, oh, my gosh, this is the end of Roe v. Wade. And this is going to have such a lasting effect on American democracy for the next several decades. Supreme Court, lifetime appointments. I get it. All these important critical cases are in the balance. But It is not the only branch of our government. And, you know, when it comes to abortion rights, you know, until such a time as Roe v. Wade may or may not be overturned, you know, people can still elect different people to their state legislatures because right now most of these decisions are made at the state level. So, And if Roe went away, it would go back to the states. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would, you know, those state legislatures would become more and more important in determining reproductive rights. I mean, obviously, reproductive rights advocates really don't want to see Roe go away. But as you say, I mean, ultimately, it would come down to, to legislators. And so I guess... It's obviously extremely important who sits on the Supreme Court. But one of the reasons we are in this place that we are in terms of this debate around abortion and right to life and all of these things is because people who care very passionately about this issue have changed their state legislatures, have changed who sits in their governor's offices and who have changed who is in Congress and who is in the presidency to get to this point. Well, if there's anything the last couple of years I think have taught everyone, it's that showing up to vote matters. And 
big sweeping changes can hinge on a relatively small number of people's votes. Elections have consequences. Is that what we're saying here? That's what we're saying. You can never <laughs> say it too many times. <laughs> and with that, it's time for a break. Coming up, we're setting aside some time to talk about American identity on this 4th of July week. I'm Sarah McCammon. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from JustWorks. JustWorks simplifies business back office complexities so you and your team can work fearlessly. They know that team bonding is an essential part of any company's success. That's why they're offering all listeners a free deck of cards for camaraderie, complete with 42 ideas to bring some joy and laughter to the workplace. Go to JustWorks.com slash JustBond to get your deck today and let the good times roll. Hey, Asma. Hey, Scott. Another crazy week. We've got North Korea. Yep, we got Russia. Midterms. And, of course, President Trump. And what happens whenever there is crazy news that erupts? We pop into the studio and break it down to make sense. So if you see a headline... We've discussed it. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. This is It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Sam Sanders, here this week with NPR political reporter Daniel Kurtzleben and senior reporter for Marketplace from American Public Media, Kimberly Adams. Okay, before the next segment, a quick question for you both. Napping in the office, yes or no? Oh, that would be so nice. Yes, if you can find a quiet secluded place. Absolutely. I ask this because a small but growing number of businesses are encouraging employees to grab naps during the workday. This is from a Chicago Tribune article. Uh, It talks about an architecture firm in Chicago called East Lake Studio that works with office buildings to uh, create quiet spaces where napping is available. I guess it's supposed to increase productivity. And I have to say, some of our producers on the show were, were like, but you're supposed to be working. And I had to say, I'm pro-napping at work. Okay, I'm going to make the economic argument for naps. Yes. Here we go. So what if, if you are a company that provides health care for your workers, for example, subsidized insurance or something like that, what do you think is going to lower your health care costs over time? Allowing your employees to nap for 15 minutes in the office or having them constantly dumping caffeine and sugar into their system? Interesting. I like that point. Excellent point. I'm going with it. Side economic note, if employers are going to continue to refuse to raise wages, the least they can do is let us take naps. Exactly. I do have a quick story about this. Um, Some people who listen to this show may know that Sam Sanders was on the 2016 campaign team along with you and I, Danielle, and was a big it was a host of the NPR Politics podcast before coming over here. And I remember one day during that exhausting campaign cycle, we were getting ready to do, I believe, a live show here at NPR headquarters. And we'd been working all day and we were getting ready to have a long night. And so I, wanting to be a responsible employee, decided I was going to go take a nap. So I found this little quiet room that we have and went over and, and it, it said, you know, not occupied. So I opened the door and on the floor, <laughs> shoeless. One Sam Sanders. Lock the door. Lock the Sam. door. I know. <laughs> so he offered to get up and let me have it, but I that was I, very nice. I let him. him sleep. I think I went and slept in a studio or something. There's a couch in that room over there, by the way. If you if you ever need a nap. Yeah. Okay. All right, Danielle and Kimberly. Because this week was the Fourth of July, we're going to take some time to talk about what it means to be an American today. This has obviously been a big question, especially the last couple of years with our rapidly changing and divisive politics. So first, I want to talk about how we as Americans feel about being American. Um, the Gallup poll has been tracking this for a long time. 
what percentage, if you had to guess, would you say of Americans are extremely proud to be an American? Well, I read the poll. I can't really <laughs> guess. Not fair. <laughs> Danielle? What was it, like 40? No, yeah, you're close. It's 47 percent. And what I think is interesting about that is it's a record low for the time that, that Gallup has been tracking this. Um, the record high was 70 percent back in 2003. Of course, that was right after mm-hmm. 9-11. So right. patriotism was at an all-time high. Um, what do you think it's going down? Democrats. I mean, that's... <laughs> I did. Re- I do remember this from the poll. Yeah, I mean, like, de- the Democrat pride in being American or extreme pride, as we're talking about here, has slid over the years. What did... Which is a thing that struck me about this poll, because polling on so many things in the last couple of years, especially, but also the last couple of decades, has been dependent upon who is in the White House. But this this poll, though, looking at this, this poll showed that Republicans are consistently prouder to be American and, and seemingly relatively regardless of who's in the White House compared to Democrats who have just been lower than Republicans and who slid this year especially, which, you know, you could reasonably hypothesize as a Trump effect. Right. I think that is kind of getting to the root of why the, that number, overall number, is so low is because how you feel about being an American has suddenly become, not suddenly, but over time, Mm -hmm. become a partisan issue. At least when I'm reading that question and looking at people's responses, I thought to myself, I bet people are hearing or reading that question and thinking, how proud am I of what America represents in the world today? Hmm. Which is a politically divisive question. It's a politically divisive question, and it depends on who's in office at a given time and what policies are happening at a given time. And so I think right now when we're looking at what's happening at the southern border, when we're looking at you know what's happened, our, our diplomatic efforts internationally and, and how America is being presented and received on the world stage and then layer on that partisan divide, I think that's where that number uh, comes from. So our view of the country is changing. And the country itself is changing. You touched on the southern border. I mean, all this tension over immigration is arguably, and I think it's backed up by data, driven by demographic change. There's been a lot made of the projections by the Census Bureau that as of 2044, the U.S. will no longer be a majority white country. I don't think we can really talk about American identity without talking about demographic change, how the electorate is responding to it, and Donald Trump, right? So I got on the phone this week with Lynn Vavrick. She's a political scientist at UCLA, and she's written a book coming out this September called Identity Crisis, looking at the 2016 campaign. And here's what she says about how Trump fits into this larger landscape of a changing America. Part of the reason that people who supported Donald Trump were so vocal about what they believed, maybe because they sense the rest of the country is moving in the other direction. So when you hear people say things like, I don't know how to live in this country anymore, it's not the country that I know or I'm familiar with, that really might be an expression of what is actually happening around them. I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely heard Trump supporters say that very thing to me, that this feels like this country feels like a different place. Do, do you hear this kind of thing, too, at all in your reporting? Yeah, it's a thing I've definitely heard in my reporting, for sure. And and I mean, like, I I I am from a relatively red place. I, I hear it when I, I've heard it when I've gone home as well. This is a, definitely a feeling that's out there in America. 
Um, I hear it from both Trump supporters and opponents, actually. You know, I think we've heard a chorus in the last couple of weeks of this is not the America I know. But it's interesting, this idea that this is new, that we are suddenly to a place where America is... And this is the argument you hear a lot on the liberal side. It's like, America has always been a nation of immigrants. Why are we cracking down on this now? And I'm like, that's some revisionist history because, yes, we've been a nation of immigrants, but there have always been groups that were otherized in that right. process. It's not like it was smooth sailing until 2016. <laughs> yeah, I right. mean, you had slavery. You had Native Americans being violently suppressed and removed from their homelands. And then you had different ethnic groups and people from different countries whether you were Irish or Polish or Jewish or pick whatever disenfranchised group. There has been a long history in the United States of certain groups having privileges over the others. So this is not a new trend, but I think one of the things that can induce pride in being an American is recognizing that throughout these various changes, we as a country have found a way to continue to move forward. One of the things that Lynn Vavrick talks about is there is actually a surprising amount of agreement. Uh, You know, we tend to focus on the differences, but on a couple of key issues, there are some major things Americans do agree on. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, almost everybody in both parties thinks that it's important to accept diversity, to accept diverse backgrounds if you want to call yourself an American. Similarly, Almost everybody in both parties thinks that it's really important to speak English, to actually be a citizen, um, or to respect our laws and respect our institutions of government. So on those kinds of things, Democrats, Republicans, they all agree. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting because you have this widespread openness to diversity. And if you crunch the numbers, break them down a little bit more, which we can do in a second, you know, it does break down somewhat along party lines. But on the whole... There is widespread, at least on paper, agreement that we should accept diverse backgrounds. And also in a growing other polling has showed a growing acceptance of of immigration, the idea that it's a good a good thing for the country. Those questions are easy to they're easy to answer in the abstract. Yeah, we may like diversity, but the two parties disagree very heavily on how diversity should be dealt with. For example, should there be affirmative action? Or, for example, on immigration, okay, yes, America is a land of immigrants, except, well, how should we deal with people who are here undocumented? The very fact that people kind of like abstract concepts doesn't really change the fact that Americans are very angry right now. Like, Americans have some big, broad, nice thoughts in common. I'm rating on this whole parade here. (laughs) I think it's an important distinction in the way those questions were worded especially on the language one. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't really, do you need to speak English to live here? It was, do you need to speak English to be an American? Mm -hmm. And most Americans define being an American as being an American citizen, not necessarily living here. And so I wonder how different those questions would have been if you had said to live here instead of to be an American. Because I think, especially as the baby boomers continue to get older and as the labor shortage continues to get worse, there are going to be a lot of people who would love to age in place who are not going to be able to find home health care workers and who are going to say, I don't really care how great your English is if you can help me live independently in my later years. Mm-hmm. And I should say this uh, survey data is from the American Democracy Fund from 2017, a sort of related demographic issue that they asked about was European heritage, whether that was important. And 
you know, most Americans think it's not important to have European heritage to be an American. 16% of Democrats, slightly more Republicans, 23% said it was. But within the Republican Party, if you look at the primary voters, 30% of Trump supporters said it was, uh, which was higher than, you know, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, John Kasich, some of the other, um, the other Republican primary candidates from 2016, which I think, again, goes to this question of how much of the Trump phenomenon is about demographic anxiety versus economic anxiety. I think that's a, you know, that is a controversial question is how much, how much does um, economic anxiety intersect with uh, demographic anxiety? Do they amplify one another? Are they separate unrelated issues. I mean, you cover economics, Kimberly. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or you, you, you know, probed yeah, into that. We did a lot of polling uh, during the campaign at Marketplace on, on economic anxiety. And you definitely saw um, white voters, especially in non-urban areas, you know, with a sharp uptick in their economic, much higher economic anxiety than some of the other groups. And when you dig into it, you often find that it's because people are comparing with maybe their parents or what they thought their experience would be. So if you're talking about people of color, if you're talking about women, if you're talking about Hispanics, you know, they maybe grew up with certain economic opportunities in an economic situation and they are seeing that being the same or slightly better now than it was. Whereas if you are a white man, now, you know, your dad only had to compete with mainly other white men for the best opportunities. But now you are competing with women, you're competing with African Americans, you're competing with Latinos, you're competing with all of these different groups. And then you have politicians who come in and say, you don't have as many opportunities because we have too many immigrants. Mm-hmm. You don't as Trump have, said, they're taking right, our jobs. You don't have as many opportunities because of bad trade deals, not right. to mention the fact there was a financial crisis. <laughs> absolutely. There's that. But <laughs> on top of that, to be clear, that I mean, Kimberly is absolutely right on all of that, but also it is not as if immigrants come into the country, women enter the workforce, minorities and women get more educated. It is not as if everybody is competing for one fixed pie of jobs or one fixed pie of resources. When women entered the workforce in droves in the 70s, 60s, 80s a bit, like it's not as if unemployment for men skyrocketed, right? Right. The GDP goes up. Right. More people consuming, more people being involved in the economy means more innovation, uh, more ideas, more growth. Absolutely. The the issue is that it doesn't necessarily feel like that on a personal level inside your own head, necessarily looking around and seeing the kind of competition you might have for jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people can do okay, but still feel like they're not doing as well as they should. But to get back to your original question, Sarah, about voters that uh, linked uh, European heritage to being an American. Being an American. I mean, that's just racist. I, I'll, I'll, call, I'll call it by its name. I, and yes, economic anxiety plays into how people feel about what it should take to be an American. And yes, there are all these other factors at play. But if you're qual- not since they wrote the Constitution <laughs> and shortly thereafter has it been a requirement to be, you know, white to be an American. Because back then, yeah, you pretty much had to be white, male, and a landowner. Mm-hmm. But we as a country and the courts have decided that that is not the standard 
for being an American. Yeah, I was curious as to why the why they use the term European heritage because it's a it's a shorthand and not a very short shorthand. I mean, it's it's obviously whiteness, right? And I mean, certainly America owes a lot of you know cultural and intellectual traditions to European history. I mean, we you know th- that that exists that is real, but we are a country that is increasingly diverse. And and you know, you just walk down the street of any major city and you see how much our culture is a fusion of of so many cultures now. On top of all of that, you mentioned walking down the street of any city. Right. Mm. Right. Which is a another key distinction here. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And I've thought about this honestly a lot since I, you know, became an adult and moved to a city because I grew up in a very rural area, which I know you know. Um, but the sense of rural, especially rural white America being the real America, that's, I can tell you, that is that really gets into your head. It's pervasive and it gets into this kind of this sense of pride, kind of, but also of like having a chip on your shoulder and feeling like this is what America is. And that and that when you get to a city that like, oh, this isn't real America. But, yeah, the urban elites just don't understand. Right. And some of it, I think, is is. I mean, race comes into it for sure. But no, but that's what's cultural, too. It's like, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've, I mean, I know what it's like to come from the Midwest and go to New York City and just be completely overwhelmed. And that has nothing to do with the color of anybody's skin or the language people are speaking. It's just just a big place. And so I wonder well, too much sometimes how how all of that gets sort of stirred together in but, people's minds. But I imagine it does get stirred together. If, if you are from a place that is predominantly white European descent... And you are constantly told by music, by this, by that, even by some like sort of coded ways by the news media, even the mainstream news media, that this is what real America is. And you go someplace where not everybody is white. And where you don't feel comfortable. And where you don't feel comfortable. I it, I think it can be easy to be like, well, that's not what real America is. I'm from real America. Or when somebody who doesn't fit that paradigm of real America comes into your community. Exactly. We had right. yet another incident uh, this week of somebody being having the police called on them from existing. It was a black family that was using the pool in their neighborhood and somebody called the police on them because they didn't feel like they belonged in that space. And so, you know, this is getting challenged all over the place. Mm -hmm. One more piece of data I wanted to share as we wrap up here. Uh, A Pew poll that just came out suggests that the younger you get, the less likely you are to see America as uh, sort of distinctive and standing out above the rest of the world. And and I I spoke to the political scientist, Lynn, about this as well. And she said that doesn't necessarily mean that younger people think that America is not great. They just are more exposed because of globalization, because of technology to diversity, you know, around the globe and here at home. And so, you know, we're seeing an evolution of attitudes. and, And it seems to me that that evolution you know, how we look at the country, how we look at ourselves. That's just going to continue. Mm-hmm. Okay, time for one more quick break. Stick around for a message from Sam for our LA listeners. And of course, after that, who said that? Hello, Sam Sanders fan. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and I want to personally invite you to listen to ZigZag. It's a new podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. You'll learn about new tech through a very personal story and a risky social experiment. ZigZag, every Thursday this summer from Radiotopia. Hey, y'all. Sam here. I have an announcement. Los Angeles, we are coming for you. We're having a live show in Los Angeles. It'll be July 30th. That's a Monday. We're going to be at the Line Hotel in Los Angeles. 
And I'll be in conversation with John Cho, the esteemed actor who you know from the Star Trek reboot movies, from Harold and Kumar, from a bunch of stuff on TV. We'll also have Anish Chiganti on stage with us. He directed John Cho in this new movie called Searching. It's this really interesting technological thriller where every scene of the film is shown through a screen. Anyway, come say hi to me and John and Anish. Tickets are on sale now. Go to events.npr.org for details. And seriously, listeners, do it. Go. I want to see you there. This is It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sarah McCammon, in for Sam Sanders, here this week with NPR political reporter Daniel Kurtzleben and senior reporter for Marketplace from American Public Media, Kimberly Adams. Now it's time for Who Said That? This is where I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that, or at least the story it refers to. And the winner gets nothing (laughs) in the great tradition of It's Been a Minute. Um, Okay, so the first one. I never thought I would see McCarthyism come to Martha's Vineyard, but I have. (laughs) Alan Dershowitz. Good job, Danielle. Oh, my God. Do you want to tell this story? You know, honestly, I haven't even read the op-ed. I've just seen Twitter exploding over it. So Alan Dershowitz, who is... Harvard law professor. Yes. He's also pro-Trump. He he is... Well, he's described himself as a liberal Democrat, but he has come to Trump's defense on some issues. There we go. Um, Alan Dershowitz wrote an op-ed talking about being... I believe the word he used was shunned. This is the word that oh, everybody's using. Oh, now I remember the story where uh, he's been ostracized and shunned. Yes, because... on Martha's Vineyard. Um for having come to Trump's defense. Martha's Vineyard. What a terrible place to, you know, just be by yourself on the beach. And shun. I'm not going to lie. I th- This is probably going to outrage some listeners. I never fully understood until this week where exactly Martha's Vineyard is. I had to look it up. like Because in my head, Martha's Vineyard, the Hamptons, places elite Northeasterners go vacation. It's all the same kind of blob of pretty New Englandy stuff. Um, so I looked it up. I got called out on Twitter about it, but I don't care. It's okay. You I should be proud this. that you didn't know. <laughs> well, I think we should share with our listeners. Martha's Vineyard is an island? Yeah, the coast of Massachusetts. Of Massachusetts yes. Like across from Cape Cod. Yeah. But the other thing I wondered about this Dershowitz story is really does anybody outside of D.C. and Martha's Vineyard really Absolutely. care? Absolutely. I have to say, oh, I've had so. my head down in trade policy all week. I missed this exactly. altogether. Good she's, for you. She's paying attention to important stuff. We'll see if you miss this next one. Second quote. Y'all really thought he was going to pass up the greatest city in the world. Hashtag the king is here. LeBron James, L.A. That's right. This is this is said by Lakers basketball player Lonzo Ball regarding LeBron James joining the L.A. Lakers. Uh, are you guys sports fans? Every single person who knows me will be stunned I got that right. <laughs> Good job. Do you think, do we think that he has any other ambitions? I mean, he, so he's leaving Cleveland on a high note, but he's going to L.A., right? Which is a big a entertainment of, city. Yeah, he has a lot of business ventures out there. He started his own company. Mm-hmm. I think he's involved in some films and things like that. I so. mean, he was, he kind of stole the show in Trainwreck. He oh, that's really, right. He really did. So maybe, maybe more to come from So Monday. clearly best actor is where he's going from here is what I'm trying to say. All right. So that's one for Kimberly and Danielle. You got the first one. This will be the tiebreaker. If you want to avoid... This is a hard one. If you want to avoid surveillance, become a juggalo, I guess. Oh, oh, this is facial recognition software. Oh. doesn't recognize uh. you if you have juggalo makeup on. Great. <laughs> Clearly, this is an interesting... 
And we should remind people what a juggalo is. Yeah. <laughs> a fan of the group Insane Clown Posse, yep. mm-hmm. which is like what? I mean, Insane Clown Posse, it's it's not just a band. It's it, it's like a lifestyle. Their followers are, re- they like, they had a march in Washington. Was it early this year, last year? They had... I'm staying out of this Yeah. <laughs> I keep looking at Kimberly. It's just one of those words that I have. She's just looking away. I just have to Google it every time I hear it because I forget what it is. Look in my mug. I can I cannot pretend to be an expert here, but I read this and I was I just kind of giggled. And... How about we just say instead that this just means that if you put enough crazy makeup on your face, then maybe facial recognition won't be able to recognize you. And a computer yeah. scientist on Twitter figured out that Juggalo makeup apparently defeats facial recognition technology. All right. Um, so Danielle won. Uh, congratulations. I think Kimberly would argue that I lost by knowing anything about Juggalos, but... I mean, <laughs> I am going to graciously accept my defeat. <laughs> We're all winners, guys. Okay, now it's time to end the show as we do every week. We ask listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage them to brag, and they do. Let's take a listen. This is Matthew in Austin, Texas. I'm here fishing with my friend Jamie, and the best thing that's happened to me all week is I caught two fish. Jamie caught only one. (laughs) This is Maya from Chennai, India. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I got to see one of my close friends for the first time in around three years. The best thing that happened to me all week was deciding to work on July 4th and having the entire office to myself. I had my 60th birthday party. Yeah, I said it, 60, but damn, I look good. This is Shannon from San Diego, but originally from Los Angeles, California. And the best thing that happened to me this week was LeBron James is going to the Los Angeles Lakers. Can't wait to see him in that purple and gold. This is Charlotte from Massachusetts. This week, I finished a six-week round of radiation treatment for breast cancer, and I got a job offer the very next day. The best thing that happened to me this week is that my dad drove all the way from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Madison, Wisconsin to help me install my air conditioner when none of my friends could help. So not only is my apartment cool, but we got to go eat brats on the lake and I got to show him my new town. This is Rob from Annapolis, Maryland. Last week we suffered a tragedy in our community and I lost a friend. It's not a good week. But last Friday night, I joined thousands of others in marching down Main Street to the city dock. Tourists and others in town came out of the stores and restaurants to join us and watch us. It was a great start to the healing process. Have a great week. Thanks for the show. Bye. Bye. Thanks to all the voices we heard there. Matthew, Maya, Breyer, Lisa, Shannon, Charlotte, Amber, Carl, and Rob. Newsrooms all across the country, including ours here at NPR, probably yours, Kimberly, at Marketplace, had a moment of silence this week in honor of the journalists killed at the Capitol Gazette. Uh, They're in our thoughts. Yeah. We appreciate you sharing your best thing. Even if we didn't have time to include it here in the show, keep sharing them at any point throughout your week. Record yourself and email the file to samsanders at npr.org. That's it for us on this 4th of July week. Thanks to Danielle and Kimberly for being here on this weird week with a half weekend smack in the middle. And of course, we're going out the way we started the show with I Like It. Now I like dollars, I like
diamonds. I like stunning. I like Very nice. This week, we've been talking with Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR political reporter. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yes, of course. Thanks also to Kimberly Adams, reporter for Marketplace from American Public Media. Thanks for having me. It's Been a Minute was produced this week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry and Kamari Devarajan. With Steve Nelson, our director of programming, additional editing by Jeff Rogers. The vice president of programming at NPR is Anya Grundman. Refresh your feed Tuesday morning for Sam's latest conversation. You'll hear Rain Wilson, who played Dwight Schrute on The Office, talking about his recent film, about his Baha'i faith, and of course, about The Office. All right, thanks for listening. I'm Sarah McCammon. Have a great weekend. Yeah.